We'd like a word. Welcome to this bonus part four of this episode of We'd Like a Word. With me, Stephen Colgan. And me, Paul Waters. And we have with us Felix Francis, author of Hands Down, and Andrew Grant, also known as Andrew Child, who, with Lee Child, is the author of No Plan B. Apart from Dick Francis books and Jack Reacher books, what were the books that influenced you two at a young age? When I was very young, I loved the the books of Arthur Ransom. I absolutely devoured them, the, the adventure stories. I was never much a, a famous five and secret seven. I was far more Swallows and Amazons and the Picts and the Martyrs and we didn't mean to go to sea. I just loved those books. What about you? I mean, yeah, Arthur, the Arthur Ransom books were fabulous. I remember the remember the, the the beginning of the first one. You know, where the the mother the mother takes the kids up to the Lake District for their holiday, and the kids want to go sailing, and she's not sure if this is a good idea, so she uh, sends a a telegram to the father who's off in some far-flung corner of the empire uh, worrying that they might drown. And his reply, you know, in telegram language was, if not duffers won't drown, better drown than duffers. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that kind of old-school <clears throat> British attitude, I remember. Um, One uh, loved them, absolutely loved them, and, 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 not, and hardly a, a life jacket in sight as well. And what about uh, now? Who, who do you like now? I, I read more biography, I have to admit, than I read fiction. I've just written, I've just read a a, a book called uh, Just Ignore Him by uh, Alan Davis, and that had a very profound effect on me. I thought it was going to be full of belly laughs and <clears throat> everything off QI, and but it, it wasn't. It was a very, you know, it was a very soul searching. A story of uh, of a really hard childhood and and life, and uh, I found that absolutely fascinating. I mean, the other uh, mystery writers. I mean, I loved adventure stories. I mean, I I, I read Alistair MacLean and and Desmond Bagley, and and mm-hmm. and I love P. D. James books. You know, I mean, they're very different to what I write and what what, what Andrew writes. I mean, they are traditional detective stories. You know. You get you 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 set a scene, someone is murdered. The the detective comes in. I couldn't do that because I write in the first person narrative, and if the detective isn't there to see the murder, then um, which which the detective is never there when the murder takes place. Obviously, he's pulled in afterwards. But I love P.G. James. I mean, she had a fascinating way of, of writing. I knew her very well. She was a very good friend of my parents, and went to stay with them often and. She used to be in her house in uh, in Holland Park or or in Oxford. She had two houses, and we, she used to be on the floor on her hands and knees with an enormous sheet of paper, which she'd made up of uh, wallpaper lining paper stuck together, and she would write the characters' names, and she'd have arrows going everywhere and how they were connected, and she would get the whole story sorted in her head before she started writing. Then she'd write the whole book in about three or four weeks because she'd spent wow. months sorting out. I don't do that. If I have a good idea for a beginning, I write the beginning and see where the characters take me. And I write the book as it's written, in, as, a, as a timeline from start to finish. And I know that uh, there, there are another, a number of others who, who write like me. I don't know how you, you do it, 
you and Lee do it. Do you? Yeah, very much like you, actually, yeah. More so now that I'm working with Lee, because I was never a huge outliner in the way that you described. I know some people... You were more of a... A pantser? Yeah. Well, I, I like the. I was somewhere in between. You know, I, I didn't do the thing where you'd, you'd have a, like a mini version of your book uh, as the outline that you would then flesh out. Or, no. You know, I didn't have diagrams or charts or anything. But I, I had a sense of where I was trying to get to. You know, if you think of it as a, as a road journey, you know, if I was leaving here tonight in my car, I would want to know that I was going to Bristol, for example. You know, how I was going to get to Bristol... I, I would work out as I want. I, I use that yeah. all the time. I, yeah. I always say I'm going to Newcastle. I know where I'm going to end yeah. up, but yeah. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get there. Yeah. And well, what about people well, like well, the thing, like? thing with working like Lee is he doesn't even know, you know, where where we, we we're going to end up or if we're even going in a car. You know, it's it's completely. But you know, he he liked to say that he never planned, but that's not strictly true. What what I think as an observer and somebody who's now collaborating, what he does is he. Instead of doing all of that planning up front, like like P.D. James, what he would what he does is he does it in very small chunks throughout the book. You know, the the writing is a series of of, of it's a it's a repeated cycle of sitting down and saying, okay, what happens next? Yeah. Deciding what happens next, writing that bit down, and then what happens next, and keeping on going. My target is to write a thousand words a day, and anyone can write a thousand words a day. It's what three pages. Of double spacing is, is or one and a half spacing is a thousand words. Anyone can write a thousand words in a day, but it's writing a thousand words today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day for weeks on end, and they've all got to tie together, which is the difficult bit, which is why at the beginning uh, of the book I'm only writing five hundred words a day, and actually at the moment I'm writing probably less than that, so I'm. I'm behind where I should be, but uh, I've always been a a deadline man. The nearer I get to the deadline, the the greater the urgency, and I feel that in some ways that increases my rush to get it right. And just because it's done quickly doesn't mean it's not done well. I think I, I actually think I write better under pressure than if I've got masses of time to do it in. But I think it's a natural part of the process, isn't it? Because at the beginning of the book, the page is blank and you, you don't know how you're going to get to Newcastle. But, you know, when you're... You don't even know where you're starting. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when you're halfway up the A1, you know, you've got more of an idea where you're going, how you're going to get there, how you're going to tie up all of those loose ends. So I, I think it naturally gains that momentum at the end. Well, I said that to someone. I mm. said, well, the, the, the last bit of the book you know you're all downhill and they said it's not downhill into Newcastle and I thought I've gone too far with this analogy (laughs) Uh, and who do you like reading now when I am writing uh, I tend to read less fiction and um, more non-fiction and I often gravitate back to books about World War II and so particularly Ben McIntyre's books I always look forward to a new a new one of his coming out he just had one out about Colditz Castle so yes I saw that in the bookshop the other day I thought Colditz has been part of of uh, my life and, and childhood because I knew two people that had been in Colditz Castle one of them was Airy Neve who was sadly killed by Irish Republicans outside the House of Parliament and he was our MP and a friend of ours. At, um, he was the MP for Abingdon and, and where my parents lived. In fact, I, he was the first person to escape from Colditz Castle. 
so we, I heard stories from him. I was fascinated by it. And and the other one was Sir Martin Gilliatt, who was the Queen Mother's private secretary. Um, he didn't escape. And, and later in life, he, he started having nightmares about his time in there. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to reading that book because we, we, we saw the television series a long time ago. And it, I think it, it, it quite sterilised the reality of what went on in, in Colditz. And there have been films and... And I think that uh, I'm looking forward to because I think that we've moved on from that and, and historians now don't whitewash things as much as they did. You're absolutely right. But, of course, you know, they have better access now, don't they? Because enough time has passed. Yes, that's um, very true. So, you know, some of McIntyre's other books, you know, the one about the formation of the SAS, the one about the planting of the body in the sea by Spain with the with the fake documents you know he, well, it, he, it's, it's it's the story it is the stuff of of, uh, of fiction isn't it i mean it's the stuff of adventure fiction there, there've been a number of films about that a, a, re, a recent one as well isn't mm-hmm. there i want to ask you about what you're doing next but first i just want to remind people so we're coming up towards the end and we've been talking about Andrew Child and Lee Child's book, No Plan B, and the various Jack Reacher ones. Andrew also has his own books under the name of Andrew Grant, written before these ones, when you were writing on your own, like False Witness, Die Twice, This Does Look a Bit Reacher-esque, this one, the cover. How many did you...? Oh, good question. Um, I think nine I wrote in my in my own name mm. before, uh, before starting work with my brother. Mm. It's Cooper Devereaux. Cooper Devereaux, he was a detect he was the kind of middle series. He was a detective in Birmingham, Alabama. And what I was doing with that series was I became fascinated by the FBI criminal profilers. Uh, read all the different memoirs that they'd written and different guidebooks and textbooks. And um, I really wanted to incorporate those into books. But the problem was so many people have done so many really good books where the hero is a profiler or a profiler plays a really major role. I didn't want to follow that path. So what I did was I tried to use what I'd learned about this very strange kind of psychology and use that to inform and shape the villains in the books because um, I wanted the villains to be more interesting because I always forget which person actually said it. It's attributed to three or four different people, but there was a case of a bank robber getting arrested in the States and somebody asked him why he'd robbed the bank. And he said, well, because that's where the money is. And so, you know, crimes like that don't take too much to figure out. But there are some crimes that you come across that are just mind-boggling. It's just incredible to understand what could have led a human being to do some of the things that they do to another person. But when you read some of this criminal psychology and you you start delving into the whole concept of of what it is to be a psychopath you realize actually these people they don't wake up in the morning and give a demonic laugh and say that they're going to do something really evil today they do something that they do the only thing that actually makes sense to them in the moment obviously it's because their world looks very different to our world and none of us would make those kind of decisions but to them, the things that they do, appalling as they are, are the only things that make sense in that situation. And I think that what I was trying to do was to mould my villains by using this kind of uh, this kind of insight, so that then it gave the detective something that was more interesting 
when he was trying to solve the crimes and figure out, you know, if you if you find the evidence, you know, try to figure out what on earth could have driven somebody to commit the, the crime that that had created it. So I had a lot of fun with the, with the Cooper Devereux books. Mm. And we want to know what you're both doing next. What's coming next? Well, I'm uh, uh, I'm into um, next year's book. I hope it'll. Uh, What's it called? It's called well. It's about auctioneering. I mean, all the Dick Francis books have a horsing background, that mostly horse racing. You don't need to know anything about horse racing in order to read them because they're not about the horses; they're about the people. And I, for the first time ever, I've written a foreword to a a novel, and it says, "Horse racing and gambling are intertwined; always have been, always will be." ever since the first recorded racing at Smithfield in London in the 12th century, people have made a wager on which horse was the fastest. But the biggest gambles in racing don't occur with the bookmakers or at the betting shops. They occur in the sales rings, where people spend a fortune on untried, untested, unridden horses in the hope and expectation that they will turn out to be champions and sires of champions sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't in 2016 at Keeneland Sale in Kentucky a horse called Justify uh, was named Justify afterwards and it was sold for half a million dollars Uh, it only raced six times but it won all those six races in 111 days in 2019 it won those six races, including the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes, to become only the 13th horse in history to to win the coveted Triple Crown. Its winnings on the track was $3.8 million US dollars. But this pulled into insignificance compared to its expected earnings as a stallion. Over a 15-year period, it's expected to earn $150 million, making it worth six times its own weight in pure gold. In the same sale ring, in 1983, a horse called Snaffy Dancer was bought by Sheikh Mohammed for $10.4 million, a world record at the time, equivalent to $30 million in today's money, the horse never made it to the race course because it was, quote, embarrassingly slow. So it was sent to stud where it was found to have fertility problems. It only ever sired four folds, none of which ever won a race. Now, that's what you call gambling. And the book is is based around the selling of horses. My main character is the auctioneer. And the title will be No Reserve. No Reserve. And when is that due out, do you think? Well, it's, it's due. Once you finish it. When I finish it. Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, I mean, I've done one a year for 16 years. So the aim in, is that it will be out in September, stroke October, depending on which side of the Atlantic we're talking about. And what about you, Andrew? Well, we are working on the next Reacher. It is called The Secret. Uh, it'll be out in October of next year. And uh the Secret is a prequel, so Reacher is still in the army. He is drawn into uh, into a um, ver- into a very strange-sounding death at the beginning of the book. 
and uh, he has to unravel exactly what was going on with uh, this person's demise, who was behind it, and what kind of a secret was it that they were trying to uh, trying to protect. Well, I, I'm glad it's called The Secret, because I was a little nervous saying to the creator of the Jack Reacher antics that uh, my book was called No Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great title, and I, I cannot wait to read that book. Well, and so this one, The Secret may become the one that new readers have to start with? You know, it's a very interesting question because when Lee and I decided to start collaborating, the idea was that we would work together on four and then he would probably uh, step back into the shadows altogether and enjoy some some well-deserved retirement. But um, I don't know if we're still going to do that or not because... It's been an absolute blast writing the books together. We've we've had we've really had a lot of fun. At the beginning, I've got to admit, I was sort of thinking, okay, well, working together might be a bit of a pain, so it'll be good when we're through that and I can just do what I want. But it's actually turned out the opposite. We've really enjoyed it. I've certainly really enjoyed it, and so I'll be quite sad actually if he if he does decide to step back all the way. But um, mm-hmm. that will be resolved in the next, I don't know, few weeks or months. Oh, oh! Exciting, exciting. But he's still a young chap, isn't he? I mean, got years ahead of him. (laughs) Well, he has, he has. Yes, you know, he um, he said for you know he he said that the thing was that you know. I think we mentioned earlier, you know, all writers are fundamentally readers, you know, readers first and foremost. And when he was when he was younger, he would love to discover a new series by an author. And he'd love to just tear through the whole series from start to finish. And sometimes you'd come across one where the quality didn't quite hold up at the end, you know, that it felt like the author was out of steam or out of ideas. And he made a promise that um, he would never do that. He would never keep, he would never stay in the game too long. That if he felt that he could see that point coming, he would do something about it. And he got to the point where he felt that he maybe had three or four more books left in him. And after that was going to have to stop. But the problem was, he he didn't want to disappoint his readers either by turning in books that were of a lower quality or by stopping because he knew that people look forward to the next reacher every year i can attest to that because you know in the pre covid days when you could do your book launches in public i would always go to his events and i think it was on the third book because first book could be a standalone the second one could be a sequel um, but by book 3 you know you're hoping that it's the foundation of a series so i remember at the launch for the third book somebody in the audience said, so how many books are you going to write? And at that point he said 21, which I think was a nod to John D. MacDonald. And then um, the person said, well, and how are you going to end? So he said, well, the 21st book will end with Reacher bleeding to death alone on the floor of a filthy motel bathroom somewhere remote in the States. And you could see people almost doing the sums on their fingers, you know, because, okay, so we book three, 21 books. Okay, fine, plenty more Reacher. They were happy. But every year, the same question got asked by somebody. The same answer was always given. And um, as we got closer and then even past 21, when he said that, you could feel the temperature in the room drop. You could feel people, you know, panicking. No, we, we, we want more Reacher. Well, so, let's face it. 
Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes and then brought him back. Didn't <laughs> exactly, so, he was forced. Yeah, so, he was forced. But to... because you're me- uh, kind of messing with the chronology, the order in which the books have been written and published are not the chronology of his life, and this the next one uh, being a case in point. So it might be that Reacher stops, but if you're going to be filling in earlier parts of his life and gaps already that could go on for quite some time it absolutely could yeah but i think you know one thing that this process um is it's really occurred to me while we've been talking is that something that felix and i have been doing which is perhaps different from some other authors that have continued series is that because we are related to the original author we grew up with the books we grew up with the with the world that had been created that the characters lived in and so when it was time for us to start writing those stories um we knew it inside out we had lived with it it was instinctive you know i've got friends who uh have been contacted by the estates of authors who are dead and have been hired to write more books in those series. And some of them, it's surprising how rigidly the estate dictates what the books have to be like. You know, there'll be a formula for the title. There'll be certain things have to happen within the first third, within the second third, within the the final third. And so, you know, they're very much working to someone else's template. And I don't know about you, Felix, but for me, there's no template because there doesn't need to be one because we know the characters, we know how the books work, and we're doing it because the original creator wanted it to be done this way, not because um, years later somebody had the idea of, of, of kind of resurrecting. So I think it's, it, I think there is a difference in, you know, you, you were talking at the beginning of the show about the idea of, of continuing a dynasty. And I think it's different the way that uh, if, you, if, if it's more like a relay race where one person hands the baton to you rather than it being something that, that, that happens years later. Yeah, I agree with you entirely on that. But I was also conscious that I didn't want to do the dynasty i didn't want to do my father's work any harm and indeed when i first wrote those first ones which came out as joint ones there were a group of people who knew that i'd written them and they included my father's former editor who sadly recently died literary agent publisher and there was it was sort of unofficial committee who I tasked with with saying, well, look, if it's not good enough, then it doesn't see the light of day. Well, it certainly doesn't see the light of day in the manner in which it was, because I didn't want to do the, the work any harm. I'm glad to say now after 16, I don't think I am doing the work any harm. And, you know, I said about the agents saying they're all going to go out of print. Well, all of the Dick Francis backlist were rejacketed, republished, and a remain in print, so I must be doing something right. And I think that the importance is that I love what my father did. I knew I was there when he did it. My books still have a Dick Francis novel written on the front. That is not the publisher's choice. That is entirely my choice because I feel that he's as much a part of my books as I feel a part of all those former ones. I mean, I, I wrote bits of Dick Francis books for since I was a 16-year-old A-level physics student when I designed the bomb that did blow up the aeroplane. So 
it is the family business and I'm continuing the family business and I will go on doing it as long as I can and as long as uh, people want to read them. Yes, I'm just imagining your names over adjacent shops. Francis and Sons <laughs> and I don't know, Child and Co, something like that. Which is a happy thought, I think. <laughs> Lovely idea. Well, thank you both very much indeed. It's been a fascinating chat. Dynasties. It's an interesting subject because, you know, you, you sometimes people sometimes think family is born to write. You think of the Sitwells and the Brontes and things like that. But it's not quite that simple. It's not quite that simple. Sometimes it's nature. As we have heard. Sometimes it's, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's nature. Sometimes it's nurture. Sometimes it's just carrying a legacy forward, and quite rightly so. And, and even if the, the person who carries the legacy forward has a different writing style, it doesn't matter. It just brings new nuances and new flavours to the character. Because after all, if for no other reason, you're writing in another generation and there's going to be you know different influences and different things going on in the world. So it's been interesting, hasn't it, Paul? Yeah, and listeners, we're always interested to hear what you think. You can email us, we'd like a word, or in fact, there's no apostrophe, wed like a word at gmail.com or get in touch via Twitter Wed like a word, at wed like a word, and the same on Facebook and Instagram. And we're always happy to hear from you or if you have suggestions for future guests. But in the meantime, thank you very much to Rajmahan Gandhi, who we heard from. Felix Francis, remind us of the title of your book, Felix. Hands down. It's a Sid Halley book and uh, it's also referred to as a Dick Francis novel. And Andrew? Andrew Child and Lee Child, remind us of the title of your book. My book is called No Plan B. And you have heard both of them read on this episode. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining We'd Like a Word and for listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.